This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where each week we take on the big financial and business headlines from around the world. I'm Nick Howard. Joining me are two of Oanda's senior market analysts. We've got Craig Earlham in the UK and Jeff Halley in Singapore. Let's start in the Asian time zone before moving west. Jeff, markets have been soft. What have you been looking at? Well, definitely Asia this week has been in a, a wait-and-see mode. We've still had uh, strong Chinese data coming out, and that's been a trend that's been in place for a few months now. The yuan is appreciated, and that has had the knock-on effect of being quite supportive of Asian currencies regionally, even though we've seen uh, major currencies come under pressure and we've seen uh, risk aversion rising into the end of the week. So uh, as long as the data from China holds up, I expect Asian currencies to outperform uh, your classical G10 ones. And Craig, can you pick up the thread on what's going on in Europe at the moment? Yeah, so Europe's um, obviously, we're, we're still very much in a COVID world and the case is spiking uh, across Europe. Uh, restrictions being reimposed. Obviously, we're seeing nighttime curfews in France. We're seeing here in the UK uh, some pretty severe restrictions being imposed in certain quarters. Liverpool under tier three, which effectively means pubs uh, closing and other, shop, other businesses being forced to close once again as well schemes being reintroduced and contact between households uh, being uh, removed. Uh, and I think it feels like the, the entire country is almost kind of heading in that direction. London is upgraded to tier two from this weekend, uh, which isn't much better, if I'm perfectly honest. It's just as pretty much much of the same minus the furlough schemes. We have to remember that just because businesses aren't forced to shut, it doesn't mean all of the other restrictions don't mean that the business model isn't entirely unviable. Uh, you think that pubs effectively thrive from people from different households meeting uh, to congregate. If, if you're not allowed to meet, then what, what business model uh, do they effectively have left? Uh, so uh, and I feel like these kind of restrictive measures are going to be imposed more and more over the coming weeks. We've long feared the winter and what it means for COVID. It's not even winter yet, and we're already seeing what's happening. So uh, I think that's going to be a drag and going to continue to be a drag. And I think the fact that we've got all the extra breaks uncertainty doesn't really help matters. There's countries across Europe which are seeing a second spike at the moment, but the difference is how generous they're being in terms of supporting um, businesses and workers. In the UK, the Chancellor's said that another national furlough scheme and a national lockdown are impossible because the country can't afford it. Based on the countries which are doing these kind of schemes, is that a good argument? I mean, you're always going to be judging this in hindsight eventually that I think we can all try and make our own judgments now. But uh, you're effectively just passing on the bill uh, effectively rather than government uh, sustaining businesses and jobs. And the whole point of the furlough scheme is that these were sustainable, viable businesses and jobs. Uh, if you are not going to put those supportive measures in place, then you're, you're firstly passing the bill on to people who are least able to afford it. Uh, and you're also, again, you're kind of kicking the can down the road. Uh, is, is a furlough scheme, a targeted furlough scheme, just to those businesses that you force to close their doors? Is that going to prove to be more expensive than, than a higher benefits bill, than higher levels of unemployment, businesses going bust um, and, a, and a slower economic recovery? It's Again, these things are always going to be a lot easier to judge in hindsight, but it seems to be a lot of the 
uh, a lot of the noises from some of the major organizations around the world is that, that we have to focus on the here and now uh, and that people will, un- will people will tolerate higher levels of debt uh, in order to protect viable businesses and support households at this point juncture that doesn't mean that we've got a, a, a kind of a, a magic money tree that, 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 that fantastic old term but I, I think this is a very unique set of circumstances and one that hopefully is not going to last an awful uh, a lot an awful amount of time longer but uh, I, I feel like the government is going to have to step up and I think the more of the country that goes into lockdown the harder it's going to find to kind of turn its back it's interesting also seeing international organizations changing their tune compared with uh, the the recession 2008 i'm thinking of organizations like the international monetary fund effectively telling governments they've got to be spending yeah well we've reached the limits of monetary policy around the world and in many places it's a zero percent world in the developed world and so the heavy lifting has to really come from the fiscal side, which can be much more direct and targeted. And to be honest, there's never been a better time for governments to issue lots and lots of debt, simply because it doesn't actually cost them anything to fund it. You can, I mean, Britain could effectively issue lots of debt now at 0%, it's a free loan. Uh, if we get inflation ticking up in the, mid, uh, mid, in the middle of the decade, that will actually deflate the debt, which is something that sort of pretty much happened after World War II, to be honest. Uh, the Federal Reserve was almost instructed to create that exact situation after World War II to deflate the war debts. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you know that's a deliberate policy measure now, but I think that the governments themselves should have uh, courage. What Britain needs to do is reduce the amount of indexed link debt that uh, it has been issuing in past years. Uh, Britain has an outsized amount of it and it needs to protect itself by issuing fixed coupon debt, uh, the same as other governments. But uh, I, I disagree with uh, these borrowing limits. Um, the, the reason governments are there are to support the economies in times like this, and that's their job at the moment. Jeff, it feels as though while Europe, the UK and the US are still deeply struggling with the coronavirus pandemic, China has effectively put it behind itself and is moving on to economic growth. Is that the case? And if so, is it the kind of growth which can happen in isolation from the rest of the world? I think what we're seeing here is the peace dividend, if you like, of a much more uh, tightly controlled and orderly society. And that orderly society is a cultural thing that is quite prevalent in many uh, Asian uh, Asian societies. It's interesting that the Philippines and Indonesia, who are probably two of the least disciplined societies in Asia, have the highest, uh, highest incidences of, of COVID-19. So uh, the Chinese government has a lot more leeway to completely seal off cities and and lock down the populations. And we've seen the same in Vietnam and Thailand as well. Also, the populations there are much more open to these sorts of of, uh, situations uh, being enacted. And thus, we're seeing Asia starting to recover much sooner than than the West. We're seeing open societies, Western democracies uh, in situations like this. This is perhaps one of the flaws of those democracies where you know people sort of do what they want and don't necessarily listen to the government. So uh, they've been a much more decisive in their leadership as well. Um, and that's quite obvious when we look at the vacillating we've seen across Europe, the UK and uh, into uh, America and not just the United States. I'm talking Mexico, Brazil and Argentina. 
Craig, timing of the pandemic in the UK is particularly unique because, of course, we're also looking at the end of the uh, Brexit transition at the end of the year. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has just been saying that the UK should effectively be preparing for a no-deal exit because, as far as he's concerned, negotiations with the EU are going nowhere. We seem, at the beginning of the week, to be back where we started with both sides criticising each other, but are markets prepared for a no-deal exit? Uh, in, in a word, no. Uh, and I think there's still plenty of businesses uh, who aren't as well. I think Michael Gove actually alluded to that uh, a few weeks ago. And it, it, the, the, it feels like there is a lot of crossover, really, between where we are now in the pandemic and where we are now in Brexit, in that I, think, I feel like there's a bit of fatigue. Uh, and the warnings that we get uh, are not just having are just not having the same impact. And it does concern me going into the winter period that the warnings coming from government are not going to be heeded as much as they were earlier on this year. And the same is true uh, in many ways of Brexit as well. When you've seen the government, and there's been multiple governments now here in the UK, uh, warning uh, that 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 no deal Brexit is an option, and that if the EU doesn't uh, if the EU doesn't move, then we will see no deal Brexit. But we're still here now, four years on. Um, and no deal Brexit hasn't happened. The same noises are being made, uh, but and, and a deal is still potentially on the table. And people just start stop kind of believing it. And I think I feel like we're seeing that reflected in the markets as well. The pound has not been anywhere near as volatile as it typically is when you're closing in on a deadline. Uh, the, the, than it is quite now. Normally, there's a lot more volatility and there's a lot more uncertainty being factored in. And we're just not seeing that on this occasion. And this is the ultimate deadline. This is the deadline which literally determines whether there's going to be a deal or no deal. And I feel like we're seeing a lot more of that same brinkmanship this morning from Boris Johnson, uh, the speech that you've just alluded to, talking about we should prepare for an Australia-style deal, which is uh, just a na- nicer way of saying no deal, uh, uh, rather than a Canada-style deal, seemingly trying to do what the EU did effectively uh, over the last 24 hours, which is push the responsibility back the other way and say that you're the ones that need to concede ground if a deal's going to happen. Ultimately, this is just negotiation isn't it and I think we, we can, a lot of us can see through this at this point I'm still confident that there's going to be a deal I may be proven wrong but I feel like this is just public brinkmanship here each one trying to get some final concessions out of the other one before making a few little concessions themselves and I think we, we should almost try and ignore uh, as much of this as possible uh, and hopefully the next uh, the, the next uh, few weeks will pass and we'll, we'll get that deal and we can all start to move on with our lives. It's difficult to ignore these kind of announcements though because as you say businesses at some point are going to have to know what's going on. Very difficult to cut through the uh, the chaff to get to the actual wheat. Yeah, I, I think there's perhaps a lot more momentum than we, we give credit for to get a, a deal done and that simply is because we are in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic pandemic, which has torpedoed world growth, including Europe and the UK, it's in no one's interest for there not to be a deal. Having said that, Europe is following the same negotiating uh, strategy they used with Cyprus and with uh, Greece, which is they don't have to move. And at the very last minute, those countries blink, particularly Greece. Uh, But certainly the markets, from my perspective down here in Asia, are not uh, are not pricing in a no Brexit deal uh, situation at all. In fact, they quite clearly are assuming that there'll be a last minute euro fudge, which is uh, something the European Union uh, specialises at. If there is a, a harsh or a hard exit, though, I, I dread to see what the British pound will do.
Yeah, I think um, I think uh, I completely agree. Uh, there's only so many times. It's kind of the boy who cried wolf type thing. Like the, you, if you spend four years warning about uh, the, the the prospects of no deal and the fact that you're perfectly happy with no deal to happen, you're perfectly prepared for no deal to happen. But each and every time you hit a deadline, you either push it back or a foot just found and you move on to the next stage of the negotiation. People just stop believing those warnings. And as Jeff's alluded to, the EU does have history uh, over the course of the last decade with finding these last minute fudges uh, and I think therefore we've now got a situation which can be quite risky and dangerous in that the markets don't believe them anymore that the risks are real and at some point that is going to bite the markets and as Jeff says the downside for the pound could potentially be quite severe in the event that we do see a no deal Brexit. Right, the biggest market moving events that we have to look forward to is, of course, the US election and all of the mini events that have been in the uh, the run up to that. That said, the live TV, the separate events um, with Joe Biden and President Trump this week didn't really seem to have much impact at all, as far as I can see. I think uh, from the Democrats' point of view, given their strength in the polling at the moment, it's more about not messing up. We saw that with the vice presidential uh, debate or anything from from a draw onwards was a win for Kamala Harris because all she had to do was not upset the apple cart, whereas Vice President Pence really had to go and score points, which he tried his best to do but failed. So I think it'll be a cautious campaign from the Democrats going uh, forward now, and it's going to have to be the Republicans that make all the running. And with a, a president such as President Trump, we can assume that there will be some substantial uh, headline risk coming out in the next two weeks for markets. One of those um, potentials would be a stimulus package, but it feels as though that is further away than ever. Craig, why is there an incentive for both parties not to make a deal that could be of such benefit to American people and American businesses? Well, barring holding the uh, the the House and the Senate and the presidency at the same time, which is currently on the cards as far as the polls are concerned, the Democrats have probably never felt so strong in these negotiations. They know that the, the president is on the back foot. They know that the Senate's on the back foot. So I think there, there, there's probably a game being played to an extent where, uh, where Nancy Pelosi uh, and Chuck Schumer are trying to hold out for the best deal possible. We've already seen it, that, that Trump tried to play the game. He cancelled the negotiations. He put a Stop to it, and within within five hours, said that well, we could look at a piecemeal deal. Now we're two weeks on, and he's the same president, the same go big or go home. Effectively, he's offered one point eight trillion, much closer to the Democrats' two point two trillion offer, um, much higher than what the Senate Republicans are proposing, which is closer to one trillion. Uh, so, uh, and he's still saying he he will go higher. So clearly, Pelosi believes that she has strength, and clearly that Trump sees it very much her way that 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 he needs to get this deal over the line if he's going to have any chance at all in this election campaign i'm still skeptical that a deal will be done not because trump and pelosi may not come to a deal but i'm just not sure that anything that they come up with is going to get the backing of the senate and and i think that's that's a major uh, risk uh, as far as this us is concerned because I just this is another thing that I just don't really feel is priced into these markets. I think these pri- these markets are pricing in a lot of optimism. The pricing in a Brexit deal, which I do think will happen, the pricing in a stimulus deal, which I'm not convinced will happen. I think the pricing in uh, a smooth presidential election, which I think we're all hopeful will happen, and I think they're also uh, pricing in to an extent uh, a COVID vaccine. Uh, and we're seeing again a setback this week uh, uh, as far as the uh, J and J is concerned. So it's 
I feel like there's there's a lot of optimism being priced into these markets, and I just don't think everything will necessarily unfold. We will see a stimulus package eventually, because if the Democrats do get that clean sweep that the polls are alluding to, not only will we get a stimulus package in January, it'll probably be much larger than the 2.2 trillion that they're factoring in. But the problem is you can't undo certain amounts of damage. You can't bring back businesses uh, from the dead. You can't um, bring back people from furlough if they've now been laid off. Uh, this takes a lot longer. Uh, so the damage uh, will be very real in the fourth quarter and it will take some time to recover. Uh, but uh, uh, just going back to that kind of earlier argument, I think the, the markets, there's still plenty of upside to be had if all of this comes to fruition. But I do think they're not pricing in the downside risks effectively and therefore the downside risks are more severe. That point you make about damage, though, is well made. We are talking about this as a, a, a the stimulus package as a political issue, but it's it's an economic and financial issue for the people that it's actually intended to help. Jeff, what does six months of penury for businesses and for American citizens actually do to an economy? Well, I think in this case, and in, in the in the SME sector, particularly in the service sector. Uh, a lot of those businesses will be gone and they won't be able to be re revived or come back. And it's all further complicated now because uh, we are seeing a, a COVID-19 surging in the States yet again. It's almost the third wave there if you look at the data. Uh, and and, and it, it's going to be uh, too uh, too little, too late. We're going to be in a, in a Roosevelt-like um, New Deal uh, situation where the Democrats are going to have to go to um, go and spend trillions of dollars on uh, infrastructure, for example, which of course America badly needs uh, to get people back on, back on back to work. Um, what I feel is that we're starting to see the U US Senate trying to disassociate itself from President Trump now. They're sticking to their guns, as, as Craig said, at a much lower number, ignoring the president as well. And I'm, I'm getting the feeling that we're seeing the, the, the Republicans looking at the polls and they're looking at saving their jobs in the Senate and they're prepared to cut the president loose uh, in order to do that. Yeah, it's really interesting. For the last four years, it's very much been in Republicans' favour to go with Trump because uh, amongst the Republican Party, Trump's popularity has still been strong and you very much see that that's not the case now. You very much see that, the tr that, that Trump is on the back foot and for the first time since he won the election four years ago, it seems that Senate Republicans feel more than happy to go against his wishes because they don't think they'll be dealing with him in six months' time. On the one hand, we're talking about the damage to small businesses in America, and yet we're seeing a remarkably strong US earnings season. Why is there this disparity? Well, we're seeing uh, some quite strong results from the major banks, and they're the first big companies to uh, have started this week with the earnings releases. So, uh, quite clearly, Goldman Sachs has had a galactic year in trading, and that's unsurprising given the volatility. JP Morgan's much the same. Citibank's much the same. I think the expectations in the market were that uh, earnings were going to drop, but what the banks are doing is actually not dropping as much as markets had actually expected them to, which has been, of course, quite positive. The firming of uh, interest rates in the, in the long end of the curve the slight steepening in the US curve is also extremely positive for uh, bank earnings because most mortgages in the United States are in the sort of 20 to 30 year tenors and they're obviously seeing a lot of business with rates as they are right now. So I, I think this is really a continuation of big corporate America continuing to do pretty well in, uh, in, in this, uh, this COVID-19 uh, pandemic. 
it's the SME sectors, I think the smaller companies that are at the most at risk at the moment uh, in, in the United States. And that's simply because they can't necessarily raise as much money. I mean, if you're a huge multinational corporate, say you're an Apple, you could probably go and borrow $10 billion tomorrow. They'd be falling over you to write a check. If you're a small foundry or some small business somewhere in the Middle West of the United States and you want to borrow a million dollars, you're not going to get it from the banks right now. And I think the other thing as well, the, 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 real, the real positive takeaway from these bank earnings was loan provisions. Uh, there was, I think it was around $50 billion of loan provisions made uh, three months ago. There was expected to be around 10 this time around, and it seems to have fallen well short of that. And JP Morgan really got us going. They're making much, much smaller loan provisions than the market had, uh, than, than the street had anticipated. And I think others followed suit. So uh, th- this on the one side could be seen as a, as, as, as a positive because it suggests that they actually perceive the economy to be on a much firmer footing and to be heading in the right direction. The downside is, I think many of these, like the Federal Reserve at previous meetings, have made these assumptions, made, made these views based on the assumption that there is going to be a stimulus package. So this is another area where there is another major downside risk. I think the other factor is as well is we don't know how bad this second wave is going to be. Uh, we've already seen a kind of mini second wave in the US across the Sun Belt, but I think this is going to uh, this is going to take down uh, other parts of America over the course of the winter. We're already seeing rising cases, for example, in New York, etc. Uh, and while these lower provisions are a reason for cheer right now, because it suggests that those uh, the, the, the banks are more optimistic than the street uh, generally was, uh, should this second wave be more severe, then we're going to see higher provisions again uh, in, in three months' time. So there are certainly some positive takeaways uh, as far as these results, results are concerned, as Jeff's alluded to, loan provisions, but also trading. But you wonder in six months' time whether the downside risks are going to outweigh these with the higher provisions. And once all of this, uh, the next few months passes, you've got to wonder what it's going to do to volatility in these markets as well. Because again, as Jeff earlier alluded to, we are in a zero interest rate world and market volatility last time we were in a zero interest rate world was not uh, was not that great. Uh, and that's obviously then going to take its toll on the trading desks. Jeff, what are you looking ahead to next week? Well, next week, I think it's all going to be uh, US headline risk. The data calendar in Asia is uh, fairly quiet. And we're at that uh, twilight zone uh, where, as we head into the last week of the month uh, before we normally get the huge data dumps we get in the first week of the new month. That week will also be subsumed by the US uh, elections. Uh, and what I'm particularly looking at is not so much the presidential race, it's the Senate race. Because if the Democrats take the Senate, they'll have a clean, clean sweep and, and a clear road for their late legislative uh, agenda. I think the most unsettling result would be a, a Senate win for the Republicans and a Biden presidency, not from a personal point of view, but from a market's uncertainty point of view. I think an increasingly desperate tr- President Trump is a bit of a loose cannon, and we also may have a uh, presidential debate uh, on the 22nd. We're not quite sure if that's going ahead yet, but you know, another one and a half hours of exhausting television. I do believe, because of this rising uncertainty and this reality check, that we are going to see a much stronger US dollar over the next week and a half as uh, investors in the, in the world start um, moving into haven assets and, and start hedging risk. And with the US taking most of our attention, Craig, is there any room left for anything else? I mean, I feel like it's a copy and paste from last week, to be perfectly honest. it's there. We've still got uh, fiscal stimulus talks ongoing. We've still got presidential election risk. It, it feels like that really fell to the uh, fell off 
a little bit this week. I don't feel like there's been that as much talk about the presidential election, given how close we are. I think that's that, that, that's quite incredible. But the stimulus bill is clearly hugely important. Uh, Brexit again, it's it's copy and paste very much from last week. And I think Jeff's point there on the dollar is really quite interesting. Uh, it's easy to kind of ignore these risks if you think they're all going to be resolved. But the closer these deadlines come without a resolution, at some point the markets have to price them in. Another week of failed talks on Capitol Hill. These markets are going to surely have to uh, are going to ha- surely have to grapple with the idea that we're not seeing a stimulus bill prior to January, and you wonder what impact that will potentially have. And the same is true with Brexit. We can ignore the talk for so long, but at some point, the eleventh hour is going to have to arrive. We don't, as ever, we don't really know when that eleventh hour is. It's not December thirty first. It has to be sometime before that. But it's it's quite an arbitrary uh, date to kind of pick out the calendar. Uh, they just kind of get made up as they go along. At some point, we are going to hit that eleventh hour though, and we're going to have to start to take these downside risks quite uh, a lot more seriously. So it will be interesting to see over the next two or three weeks just how the markets do factor these in and how they shield themselves. Craig, thank you very much indeed. That's Craig Earlham, senior market analyst at Oanda in the UK, and before him, Jeff Halley, senior market analyst at Oanda Asia Pacific in Singapore. This. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast. You can subscribe and download from any of your normal podcasting places. I'm Nick Howard. Join us again next week. the Oanda podcast from the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.